0: I've fallen into this trap myself of doing things for your product that feed your ego rather than necessarily feeding the business. It can feel good to get buzz, to get hype, to get publicity. When do you need buzz? When you launch something. It is particularly important when you're building a network effects business, but unless it's actually serving your growth or your ability to succeed, it's not particularly valuable and it can become a distraction. Continuous integration and deployment is a cornerstone of robust software development and delivery. It's something anybody who cares about tech should know about. That's why I'm thrilled that this episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Buildkite and the Unblock Conference. Unblock is a two-day virtual event discussing all things CI and CD, hosted by Buildkite on December 6 and 7, 2022. Register for free at buildkite.com Unblock.
1: You're listening to The Startup Podcast, a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hey, I'm Chris. And I'm Genev. And on today's episode, we're doing another listener Q and A listeners from all over the world have submitted some questions and we've picked out the best ones to read and have Yanev and I provide our perspective If you want to hear your name and question on one of our listener Q and A episodes, check the show notes. There is a link where you can submit your own questions.
0: Our first question comes from Luke in Sydney. He asks, what are your suggestions about deciding on which features to build next from the pipeline of features a team has? What criteria are best to use? For example, customer feedback, what will have the most impact on revenue, what the client wants, et cetera.
1: I would say the question changes depending on the stage of startup that you have, right? So at the very beginning, you are trying to figure out how to achieve product market fit. What is the right product to meet the needs of real users in the real world? So the way you might prioritize that is very different than maybe the way you would optimize a product with existing users, existing usage, and so on. In the early days, part of that is going to be based on your intuition about what the problem is, how the problem might be solved, doing some early value prop testing through surveys, user research, and so on. Trying to figure out what is that minimum viable thing that will achieve product market fit for you. The mistake I find most often here is people will ship this thing they call the MVP, and I don't want to debate what an MVP is on this episode, but they'll ship something, their first version, and it will be this thin slice of functionality that isn't quite good enough for anyone. And there's this pyramid which talks about products needing to be functional, reliable, usable, emotional, delightful. we will put a link to this pyramid in the show notes. And people tend to think the thin slice, that minimum thing they need to ship is along the bottom. It's just barely functional. But what you actually need to ship is something that slices through the entire pyramid, each thing you ship needs to be functional, reliable, usable, and delightful. Oftentimes I'll see people trying to pivot to the next feature, the next feature, and the next feature, and they haven't actually made that minimum thing delightful and usable. So when you're later on in the process where you have a few users, you have quite a bit of usage, the question I like to ask myself when prioritizing features is what is the number one reason more users are not being more successful with my product more often? The number one reason that might be anything from an awareness problem, in which cases it's a marketing problem and a growth tactics problem. Through to an onboarding problem, people are kind of hitting the sign up page but not making it to the dashboard, to a conversion problem, they're hitting the dashboard but they're not sticking around. And so there's a problem with that first start experience, all the way to, well, they stick around but they don't convert to paying. So then there's some value exchange problem going on there. So you really need to have a deep introspective look in terms of what is that number one reason. Once you've tackled that, moving on to the next number one reason, and the next number one reason. And it might sound obvious, but uh, I can't tell you the number of founders and product managers I've bumped into where they have this massive backlog of ideas, massive backlog of exciting things they want to do, but they're not really looking at that bottleneck. What is that primary thing that is choking up the whole system?
0: A lot of the anti-patterns and dysfunctions we've discussed in previous episodes are around this question of the feature backlog, right, Chris? So we've talked about your ideas being cheap. I think that was our second ever episode. We had Marty Kagan on the show. He called it featureitis, the curse of the MVP and the misunderstanding of MVP even is. I'd like to offer a a complementary view on this from the point of view of working backwards and what you're trying to achieve. This happens at two levels. One is what is the problem I'm facing right now? How do I solve it? You need to understand what the outcome is that you are trying to drive towards and prioritize the work you're doing accordingly. That work is not just features. It can be experiments. It can be user research and interviews, but let's take it up a level, which in a sense, Luke is some of what your question is about. Which criteria to use customer feedback? What will have the most impact on revenue? What the client wants, et cetera. And of course there is no single right answer, but our sweet spot here on the startup podcast is talking about venture backed startups. And the thing to remember when you are building a venture-backed startup is you are playing this iterative game. And that is how the whole system is set up. Why do we have pre-seed, seed, seed, series A, series B, series C funding rounds? Of course, you don't need to collect all of those, but why are there multiple rounds of funding? The idea is at each stage, there is something you need to demonstrate, something you need to prove that de-risks your ability to become a really big successful business. That unlocks the next round of funding That allows you to then de-risk and prove the next thing that you need to prove. When you're trying to figure out what is the most important criteria here, start with a story that you might hope to tell your potential investors at the next round. You don't have to be actively fundraising. The question here isn't about building a beautiful pitch deck. It's about saying, okay, what do I need to prove this round? It's very valuable to start with what's the story I need to be able to tell. And then you can ask yourself, how am I going to get myself from here where I am now to being able to credibly tell that story to future investors. That should be defining your metrics and the things that you're prioritizing right now. So if you're trying to prove that you can grow revenue, then of course, what will have impact on revenue is going to be very valuable. At earlier stages, you're often going to be looking at things like unit economics, product market fit, your ability to grow effectively, retention. If you're in an enterprise space, you've mentioned what the client wants. One of our little third rails here that we've talked about before is you do not want to be a tech-backed services business where you're just building the things a client asks for. However, especially in an enterprise SaaS situation, a really important milestone is usually to get those first few clients onboarded. So then you really need to think, okay, how do I build a product that is not bespoke to each client? But that is able to meet the needs of a representative group of clients that become those lighthouses you can use to raise more funds, but more significantly to raise more customers to say, these are our referenceable customers who we can use. Unfortunately, Luke, the, the answer to your question is, of course, it depends. But what I hope you take out of our answers here is how to think about this which is work backwards, be efficient, understand the different drivers of user behavior, and don't fixate on features. Features come at the end. And so a backlog of features is only as useful as the understanding and learning that went into that backlog.
1: A few things that came to mind as you were speaking that I think are worth touching on here, you know, optimize for the story you want to tell to the next investor. The ideal case there, of course, it's not always true, but the ideal is that investor is looking for a good business. We need to prove that this thing has product market fit. We need to prove that it grows. We need to prove that it retains. Well, guess what? Investors are looking for that because they're looking for good businesses. The other thing I'd say is choose your customer and their problem very carefully. If you have an amorphous blob of a customer in mind and you have an amorphous blob of the problem, the use case, a vertical or a market, making these kind of trade-offs, uh, whether it's what is the reason more users are not getting more successful or... How do I drive retention or how do I find product market fit? These questions are much harder to answer and and actually you will answer them in a random way. The next thing I'll say about this is um, watch out for this experimentation thing. Not everything needs to be an experiment. I've bumped into some startups where they're building a product and they've done that through experimentation, learning and user research, but the product was not emailing the user once a week with key updates and insights about what happened in the product that week. The product was all about aggregating data and deriving insights for a team. So they were starting to run experiments to see if sending that email out would drive reactivation and user engagement. This is an area where I feel like experimentation just goes off the rails. You do not need to run an experiment to see if email drives engagement. You might need to run experiments to see what exactly should be in the email, its table stakes, That your product sends out the right kind of emails at the right time to unearth that value even if the user doesn't log in so just be careful about like over experimenting on stuff that is table stakes that's something i always want founders to be aware of i sometimes find people who are down in the weeds experimenting their life away trying to figure out the next tactical step kind of lose track of the forest for the trees sometimes and so you talk about working backwards, Yanev, in one of our last episodes, we talked about working backwards from the ideal. Figure out what this thing is. What is the mental model? What does a Ferrari version of this look like? And, and work your way backwards to what is our wedge in the world? What is our minimum prototype of version one that sets us off on that journey? And you know, it, the journey is not going to lead you directly to that Ferrari. It may in the end look like a Lamborghini or might look like a private jet or something. But the, the point is have some sense of where is this going and work backwards because again, I f- see a lot of founders staring at this backlog of ideas and they're not sure what is this ladder up to? Where are we really heading? And on that, let's take a break.
0: Giving your employees equity is awesome, but managing that equity scheme yourself, not awesome. Cake Equity makes it easy to create and manage employee equity schemes for your global team. Check them out at cakeequity.com.
1: Okay, let's get back into it.
0: Our next question from Anshul in Mumbai. And Anshul writes, I would love to know your learnings on the importance of public relations in the early days of a pre-revenue product, which is ready for go-to-market. And what are some of your best techniques and hacks to get coverage on a shoestring or zero budget?
1: Yanev, when you were on vacation, Leah and I talked about launches and closely tied to launches as PR and marketing and getting coverage from the tech trades and from mainstream media. One of the things we touched on there was the idea that launches are an interesting beast. And in many cases, they're quite selfish an idea. They're not really for your users or for your market. They're really more for you, for an emotional catharsis and ability to have a bit of a coming out party. They're a good way of maybe establishing some baseline credibility and some initial rush of adrenaline. But ultimately, most launches, unless you're Apple or Nike or something, tend to be an emotional letdown for the team. Really, what it's about is having those hypotheses, having those product iterations, driving and grinding growth tactics so that you're over time building your user base. In my experience, a lot of PR, a lot of comms doesn't ultimately convert to much value in terms of raw usage, retention, and active users over time. Now, where PR can help is in credibility, right? So if you're doing something that might be in a, in a space where the users need to see some credibility, like why are you the right service or tool that I should use? And certainly having, you know, as seen on TV style, social proof is useful. Just don't rely on PR for this kind of sudden
0: rush of users and
1: engagement and usage of your service.
0: You might get a sudden rush, but it will be a sugar high. It will quickly pass. So you might get a surge of users for a day or two, and then you get back to your baseline. And so it doesn't provide that massive amount of value. And I think the big value of PR is credentialing and ultimately... Brand building, if you do it over a prolonged period. So, on the credentialing side, my startup, Circular, we offer subscription electronic devices. So, you get access to, say, an iPhone for a monthly subscription fee. A lot of scams look similar, right? They look like, hey, get an iPhone for $99. And people think we're a scam. So, having that PR and that brand actually help us to say this is a legit service and you can trust us. And then the brand building piece, I'd take a step back from PR. When you are building your product, building your brand, you need to have a marketing strategy. What is the set of channels that I'm going to use to drive awareness and adoption of my product? And there are many different ways of doing this. Paid marketing, earned marketing via content. PR can fit into that above the line. SEO, there are so many different ways of getting your message out there. PR is important if PR forms an important part of your well-considered marketing strategy.
1: And the other part of the question here is how do you do this on a shoestring budget? I stumbled into some hacks that were unique to my situation. You know, I was in Silicon Valley and a number of the people in the tech news arena were my friends. By just nature of how I socialized and where I socialized and that kind of thing, I I had a lot of friendships in the tech crunches and mashables and at the time readwrite web and so it was it was relatively straightforward for me to reach out to them and say, Hey, mate, I got this story here or this story there. And And they certainly didn't pick up every story, but at least I had an entry point there. I think if you don't have the kind of the privilege or the advantage of having those relationships, then networking your way into those communities can be useful. So finding out which writers and journalists you like, you can look at their bylines on the news sites and finding out who they're linked to on LinkedIn and who they're friends with and maybe pitching their friends of friends and kind of earning an introduction to that journalist. That works for recruiting, it works for fundraising, and it works for PR. So always try to find a warm introduction if you can. It's better than just spamming their inbox or just tweeting at them endlessly.
0: My experience with journalists is they have absolutely overflowing inboxes and no administrative assistance in order to actually manage that inbox. So your most likely response from a journalist is going to be no response at all because they're just drowning in email Unless you stand out, they will never get to you. Consider that with PR, you are kind of making a trade. Consider the publications or the journalists incentives here, which is, especially in this day and age, it's about getting clicks. It's about having a story that is interesting and attractive. And so your job is to be able to pitch yourself in a way that's like, oh, okay, this is an interesting story that my readers will want to read. If you do that, you make it easy for them. And that's how you stand out. You need to be thinking from the point of view, of the journalist, when you're doing PR, think about how they can make it interesting for their readers, how it stands out from the many, 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 many other pictures they get every single day. Our next question is from Reese in Sydney. Reese asks, when do you start building an audience or community pre-launch? For example, a one page coming soon, web sign-up, reserve your handle or username, etc."
1: I'm a big fan of doing this really early. We've talked at length over multiple episodes about what is the minimum viable product you can do in the market to test your hypotheses. Well, sometimes the absolute minimum you can do is throw up a webpage with some value props and a pitch and put a coming soon sign and waitlist and start running some ads and see if anyone gives a shit. I'm tinkering with an app on the side right now. I've had a coming soon page for quite a while. It talks about what the app is going to do and how it works. And it says, reserve your place, join the waitlist now. And I have a few hundred people on a wait list ready for my app to launch. I really think it's never too early to start testing what users might like and who responds and engages with your value props and your product idea. And part of this question was, when do I start reserving my handles and so on? So you should absolutely start reserving your namespace upfront on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook, your domain name, certainly. You definitely wanna be reserving that namespace at the very beginning to make sure you're naming the thing
0: correctly. So what you're talking about there, Chris, is what's sometimes called the painted door experiment, right? Instead of building the thing, we're announcing the thing and see if people are actually interested in using it. I wonder if the sentiment of the question here more is we know we're building a product, it's currently being built. Do we get the word out there early to build up buzz? That's actually a slightly more complex question to answer. If you put the page up a long time before you deliver the item, then by the time you actually launch your product. Any pre-launch buzz has dissipated. I think the answer is usually no. I've fallen into this trap myself of doing things for your product that feed your ego rather than necessarily feeding the business. It can feel good to get buzz, to get hype, to get publicity. When do you need buzz? When you launch something. It is particularly important when you're building a network effects business, but unless it's actually serving your growth or your ability to succeed, it's not particularly valuable and it can become a distraction. Where the value of the product is proportional to the number of people using the product. So, you do not want to go live with a ghost town. In that case, you want to have a fairly thoughtful strategy about when you build the buzz. So, you're crescendoing when you launch and then you get people in. And rather than a ghost town, you have an exciting, vibrant community that attracts more people. If the hype is not useful to you at launch time, there's a lot of value to launching quietly and Ironing out all of the inevitable bugs and kinks in your product before it gets too much exposure.
1: I'm often very skeptical of these hyped up projects. If you're building an NFT project, then you need a landing page and lots of hype (laughs) because that's what it's all built on. But um, if you're building real utility and a real product, focus on that slow burn growth experimentation and uh, measure the user's engagement and learn, iterate, iterate.
0: Final question is from Danielle in Brisbane. And she asks, when approaching potential investors via cold introductions, what is the best way to phrase these? Do you stand out with clever copy, straight to the point with facts, include a pitch deck, tell your story? What do they want to know in the first intro?
1: You really, really should have tried to avoid cold intros anywhere at any time. You want to go and build out your LinkedIn, invite every human being you've ever met in your entire life. And you want to start understanding who do you know that might know an investor? Or who do you know that might know someone who knows an investor? And then you wanna go pitch your way to that investor. So let's say you're two degrees of separation away from an investor or three degrees. So you go meet with your mate and you go, you know what, man, I'd really love an intro to Harry because Harry knows Sally. And so here's my pitch, here's what I'm working on. Would you mind introducing me to Harry? Then you go meet Harry for coffee and you go, hey, Harry, I know that you know Sally over there at VCX. And, uh, and that way you get a warm introduction into that VC and you're not just trying to email them out of the blue. Don't pitch that VC right out of the gate because getting investment from a VC is very much about relationship building. And so what I like to do is I like to try to go out before I'm planning to raise the money. It's what I call the investor roadshow. And so three months before you're going to start your round, you go do all of that networking, all of those you know, six degrees of separation hops that I just talked about. And you meet Sally at the VC firm and you say, Sally, I'm not raising money right now. What I want to do is I want to get to know you, get to know your firm, get to know your thesis. What are you looking to invest in? And I want to introduce the company and tell you what we're trying to do, where we're headed. And what I'd like to learn from you is, what do you need to see from our behavior over the next three months in order to get conviction on this deal? Now, this is really important. The common cliche advice is, ask for advice and you get money and ask for money and you get advice. I'm not telling you go to a VC and ask for advice. Like open-ended, broad, amorphous advice. Like, hey, do you have any advice for me? No, you ask them, <laughs> what do you need to see to get conviction on this deal in three months when I come back and I'm actually raising money? What do you need to see us achieve? Are you looking for revenue? Are you looking to de-risk this hypothesis? Are you looking for product market fit? Are you looking for us to hire an executive team? What specifically about my business do you need to see To get conviction on this deal and thank you very much and and then you come back in three months and you go hey sally remember that deal i told you about we are now raising money and those things you asked me to do i hired those two executives i broke into that new market i i focused on growth and so now the implicit point that you're trying to make is you have no excuses left sally to invest in my company because I did everything you told me to do. Now, this is not just about just dancing to the VC tune and doing whatever the VC says, because there are some things you may decide like, well, we're not gonna go do that and we don't wanna do that. You know, you should really follow what your business strategy is. But what you're able to say to Sally is like, hey, you've now met me twice, three times. You can see that in the first meeting, I was coachable. I asked the right questions. I heard clearly what you said. And now in the second and third meeting, I delivered on what I said. And so now it's no longer a first date, it's a second and third date, and we all know what happens on those dates, right? And so really you want to warm intro your way to the VC where you can get to know them in a context that is not asking for money, where you can get almost the cheat codes for how does that VC work and how do they think about your business, and then come back with those cheat codes and unlock the investment round.
0: Chris, you totally did not answer the question. (laughs) Which is when approaching potential investors via cold introductions, what's the right way to do it? Now, everything I, I you answer, say. I answered the it might...
1: question. Don't, don't do that. <laughs>
0: well, okay. But let me disagree with you a little bit on that because yeah. I think everything you're saying is the ideal case, right? To do things the way you did it and you should make every effort to do so. It's also worth acknowledging. We do have a diversity problem in our industry and part of it is because it's so relationship based. So while it might be easier for some people to break in than others you should always try to get the warm intros but cold pitches are not useless i'm a small time angel investor if you want tiny checks in your startup i'm your guy and i have invested in companies based off cold deal flow based on well written emails with well written decks coming through my inbox catching my attention and then sparking the conversation there you know it's the same as cold sales now i will not present myself as an expert on cold outreach i think it is an art in its own, but you want to show the person receiving the email that you know them, you understand them, and you're being respectful of their time. So a cold email works better if it's genuinely personalized, right? That you feel like you're getting an email from someone who is choosing you, that they would like you as an investor. You're not just part of some giant list of emails that they've harvested from somewhere. They're like, ah, I know Chris and Chris seems like the perfect person to have on my cap table. And this is why. Tell Chris that, Daniel get straight to the point with facts. Be like, I've got to know you through your podcast and I think you're great. Your experience is particularly interesting to me because of this. This is the company I'm trying to build. We're raising capital to achieve goal X. Please see the pitch deck attached. If you're interested, feel free to contact me. Here's my Calendly. That's the sort of email that I won't immediately delete from my inbox and I might even respond to.
1: Okay, okay, Yanev, you've twisted my arm. I'm going to answer the actual question. I would certainly follow your guidance there, Yanev, but I would personally focus on bullet points. Two or three bullets max with as few words as possible, right? Like the problem we're solving is X billion dollar blah, blah, blah. We have 30,000 active users and we're looking to raise a round of X million dollars to fund growth into Latin America. Please find attachment my deck and a clear call to action, which is I would love 30 minutes to walk you through the deck personally please suggest some times that work for you. Otherwise, here's my Calendly link. What I've seen is like these emails with like paragraphs of text. And at least I'll tell you what my behavior is. is like, wow, that's a very thoughtful, important email. I need to star that email and come back and read it later so I can digest it properly <laughs> and give it the proper attention it deserves. But I never do because I'm busy.
0: Yeah. And always attach a deck or equivalent. I really feel like if you are trying to get someone's interest, yes, give them the bullet points, but don't make them schedule a call with you as the very first action. Let them browse through the deck and get a sense of what you're about and make sure that your deck is good. By the time this person is scheduling a call with you off of your cold email, you should be getting straight into the nuts and bolts, not just introducing your business. We have a whole episode on crafting your pitch deck, so i encourage you to go listen to that one again.
1: The biggest mistakes I've seen are emails that are too pithy, like hey, Chris, we're looking for a financial partner. I'd love to talk to you about our business. Way too pithy. It should be like, I am looking for an investor. Here are the five bullets about my business. The deck is attached. Please suggest some times to connect. And then the opposite mistake I've seen is like paragraphs and paragraphs of text, which don't get to the point and I don't have time to read it all. And so you need to find that really nice balance of clean, actionable information that gives the reader like a clear sense of who you are and what you do and what are you focused on with the attachment. You know, you talked about Calendly, I think Calendly is one of my favorite tools in the world. It helps people schedule onto your calendar. I find it sometimes a little bit rude if in the power dynamic, the other person has more power than you. I find it a little bit rude to say, well, oh, just use my Calendly. So what I would often say is like, please suggest some times that work for you or if more convenient, here is my Calendly.
0: Yeah, that's fair. There is some very, very weird social dynamics around Calendly. All
1: right. That's our questions for this week. As I mentioned at the top, please don't forget to check out our show notes where there's a link for you to submit your own questions. They really help us make sure that we're tackling the subjects that that you guys want to hear. So keep them coming and we'll keep answering them.
0: In the meantime, if you have a bunch of questions and you want deeper answers, well, Chris, you make a living out of answering questions and giving great advice. So folks are listening to us and want to get in touch. What's the best way of working with you?
1: Yeah, that's right. I've carved out some time to work with startups directly and, and answer their questions personally and privately. So feel free to learn more about that over at chrissar.com slash advisory. And I might just send you my calendarly link for a meeting time.
0: <laughs> if you have a moment and you'd like to support the show, we'd really appreciate if you share us on LinkedIn write a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share it with other folks who would appreciate the content.
1: Awesome. Thanks for that, Yanev. We'll catch you in the next one.
0: See you later. Continuous integration and deployment is a cornerstone of robust software development and delivery. It's something anybody who cares about tech should know about. That's why I'm thrilled that this episode of the Startup Podcast is brought to you by Buildkite and the Unblock Conference. Unblock is a two-day virtual event discussing all things CI and CD, hosted by Buildkite on December 6 and 7, 2022. Register for free at buildkite.com unblock.